0: just to sum up what we have already seen in the book of genesis in chapter one we saw the six days of creation in the first account And in chapter two that account is finished the the heavens and the earth were completed and all of their hosts by the seventh day that's chapter two verses one and two and then in chapter four moses tells us now this is the account of creation he begins to to give us a second account of creation uh, on At first look, the order looks a little bit different, but we learn the the timing references, again, are more inexact than we would like. And so you can't say chapter 2 contradicts chapter 1 because Moses is using inexact language here. Uh, He qualifies quite a few of his statements, and he's writing for a particular purpose. In chapter 1, we saw that that purpose was to say there is one God. This one God created everything. He created everything. With order, he is the one alone to be glorified. No, he doesn't need people. He is the one who drives everything, and instead of creating people because he needs them to somehow serve him, he created his image within his creation and instructs his image bearers to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue the earth and to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts and the crawling things. And so rather than creating humanity because he needs them to serve, he created humanity to rule as his image bears as a picture of himself, which means God is about his own glory, not getting what he needs from people because he doesn't need people. In chapter two, God planted a garden and he created a man And when he created that man, Adam, he created that man outside of the garden and moved that man into the garden and instructed him to take care of the garden, rule over it, subdue it, cultivate it, keep it. This man is currently in a garden of luxury, which is what Eden means, and we find ourselves in verse 18, continuing on today. Then... After God created man and put him in the garden and instructed him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then, as verse 18 in chapter 2, Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed and upon reading those words last week, <laughs> there were snickers from the the massive crowd we have in here. They Naked. They were naked. And they were unashamed. Well, we will get to that today. Um, and it really is exciting. Uh, and there really is a lot going on there. And Moses has a purpose in writing that. He's not just being funny. Right? Verse 18. Then... The Lord God said. Here we see Moses continue to use this wonderful designation for God. Lord, in English, is put there in place of the Hebrew Yahweh. So this text literally reads, Then Yahweh, God. And Yahweh is the proper name that God has chosen for himself and revealed to Moses. It is a singular, proper noun. Then the Lord, Yahweh, then Yahweh, God, which is Elohim, again, plural. Again, in the text, we see this God identifying himself as singular in his essence, but plural in his personhood. God is singular, Yahweh, plural, Elohim. Yahweh, Elohim, one essence, multiple persons three persons to be exact and we saw them at least at least alluded to in the first chapter the father and the word who is the son and the spirit who hovered over the surface of the waters Yahweh God said it is not good for man to be alone i thought everything god created was good In chapter one, we saw God step back and we saw him observe his creation and we saw him say, it's good. Everything that I have done is good. In fact, everything that I have done is very good. If we look at the, the seventh day. He blessed it and sanctified it and rested. It is very good. Yet here we see that God sees part of his creation that is not good. Keep in mind, in chapter 1, the creation of man and woman both happened on the sixth day. And here we're, we're zooming in. And the man is created first, and this is the account of the creation of woman. When God looked at the man who is by himself, living in bliss, in the garden of luxury, stewarding the garden. And he sees man by himself, and he says, it is not good for man to be alone? Why do you think it is not good for man? Here, quite literally, meaning males. Why do you think it is not good for the man to be alone? But think about creation. The creation account in chapter 1. Oh, oh no. We have to read chapter 2. In the context of chapter 1. Or else we have no idea why it's not good for man to be alone. This means that chapter 2 is not so disjointed from chapter 1 as some claim. Because you need chapter 1 to get the context for chapter 2. To know what in the world is going on. To know why it is not good for the man to be alone. And you go back to chapter 1 and you, and you start reading And when God creates humankind on the sixth day, he creates them, male and female, in his image. And Moses repeats himself, in his image he created them, male and female. It is man and woman together who are the singular image of God. That's why it is not good for man, the male to be alone in the garden. He needs a counterpart in order to fully represent who God is and what God is doing. God's relationship to creation and to humanity. Men cannot do it on their own. The, the man is just one side of the equation here. So, so God, being concerned about his own glory, looks at the man by himself in the garden. And Adam's not lonely he doesn't know what it's like to have other people around yet. He just knows what it's like to have the animals and the plants and to have his job and to be in perfect communion with, with God, right? He, he knows what that's like. He's not lonely. God doesn't need to create someone for him so, so he can feel fulfilled. No, God looks at Adam, and there's only, there's only half of the divine image there, only half of the image of God. And that is not good because God is concerned about his own glory. There need to be two sexes, counterparts. There needs to be a helper for the man. Otherwise, he can't do this. He can't be the image of God upon the earth, and he can't fill the earth with God's image or steward the earth properly. He needs a helper suitable for him. It is not good for the man to be alone And seeing that it is not good, something that's absent, not something that God created, but something that God hasn't created yet. There's a void there that needs to be filled. This void is not good. Seeing this void, seeing this thing that is not good, God prays. No, he doesn't. He he takes action. He vows, I will make him a helper, suitable for him. Now well, if God is perfect in everything that he does. And he didn't simply sit around and there's nobody for God to pray to, right? He's he's the chief. If the buck stops with God. There's no one for him to pray to. But he doesn't just sit around and contemplate this void like what would it be like if there were a counterpart for her? the man. There needs to be a counterpart for the man. Man, I hope that happens one day. No, he is perfect and he takes action. And, and I think here he sets an example for us. I think there are too many people who use prayer as an excuse not to act. Prayer is good. We need to pray. Prayer is powerful. But there are so many who sit back and because of laziness or just they don't have the the will to to speak or to take action when they see injustice or people failing at mercy or unsound doctrine or doctrine that is unhealthy or things that are hurting society and wars and rumors of wars and they see these things and and resolve only to pray or they see a friend hurting or relationships going bad and they resolve only to pray I think there's a great wrong that is done one because our prayers don't move God who is perfect and who has worked circumstances together by his providence the way he means to right but I think in those cases our prayers have failed to change us and to move us to action we are the movable ones in this relationship not God God acts we also act and we act prayerfully The Sins of negligence are just that. God is not negligent, so we cannot be negligent when it comes to the world we live in. We hope for and pray for a better world, but we also work for it. And so we follow God's example. And that's the first application we see here. God acts. I will. He vows to do this. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I will make him a helper that fits him. And I think God here means in every possible way one person could fit another. Physiologically, I think God is there, right? When he creates a helper suitable for Adam, he creates a a, a physiologically compatible person for Adam. I think God is there Mentally, like men think one way, women think another way. And God made that complimentary, right? One person fits another. One partner balances out another partner. I think God does that on purpose here. Suitable, a helper suitable for him. Emotionally, people that fit, men feel differently than women do about stuff and things technical terms right God vows to make a helper suitable for him and this and this person automatically from the start is designed to be a helper a helpmate so that the man doesn't have to be the entire image of God what a burden that would be right but in context here a helper suitable for him so that The fullness of God's image is present within his creation and is multiplied and fills his earth. So from the outset here, we we have to recognize the Bible is entirely complementarian when it comes to the relationships between man and woman. When it comes to roles within the home and within the church, the Bible is entirely and I don't think there's a way to get around that as much as our society wants to get ar- around that. And I don't know why we would get around that because we've seen the downfall of egalitarianism in our time. And egalitarianism has led to the, the destruction of the concept of sex and gender biblically. And we've seen how that destruction of the concept of gender and sexuality according to a biblical standard and just according to the way nature works, even if you don't have a Bible, you can see it, right? But the destruction of this concept has led to women again being devalued and overtaken by men and it is an unjust system. They call it social justice, but it is it is entirely unjust and it creates a place in society where men are again ruling over women and where those who cannot defend themselves even unborn babies have no voice and no representative in society it is unjust for all of society because those within the within society are not defended they have to defend themselves and they have to reinvent themselves over and over again to try and fit society's constantly changing standards. And then we read the Bible, and it encourages us toward justice, do something about this. And it encourages us toward complementarianism, where one piece fits another, and toward true equality, I believe, which is found in complementarianism, not egalitarianism. I think egalitarianism creates such an inequality that society would never be able to exist if it is built upon that standard. And so God vows to make a helper suitable for the man. Out of the ground, notice, there's no timing reference here. Moses is just telling us, out of the ground, God did this. man, did not exist according to chapter 1 prior to the creation of the beasts from the ground, right? God did that first, and chapter 1 is pretty explicit about that. God created them first, and then when they were created, he created humanity, male and female. He created them. Here in chapter 2, there's no timing reference here. There's no contradiction between chapters 1 and 2. Moses is just reminding us, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And notice this. This is important to recognize, to to keep in your mind as we move through the text, that God is forming every beast of the field and bird of the sky out of the ground. He forms them out of the ground. And remember that detail because it's going to be very important later on in this sermon as we move through the text. And so God brings them out of the ground and he brings them to the man to see what he would call them. And a quick note about the man here. As as we're seeing the man listed in this part of this story, this part of the narrative, his, his name has a definite article before it. It is the man, and that's going to become important later when we see a the definite article removed from the equation, and Moses starts talking about men generically. The man refers to Adam, and the word for man is very interesting. Moses gets his word for man from the word for ground in Hebrew. So, ground is adama, man is Adam, and you you can hear the correlation there. So, the fact that Moses is using a definite article to refer to the man he's he's saying quite literally the Adam the Adam A D A M When he says the Adam he's already naming the man and he's naming the man according to the man's nature he's taken from the ground quite literally formed out of the ground Adama and he is man Adam that is his name because that is his source And you think about the name of God, Yahweh Elohim. He is named according to his nature. That is his name because that is what he is. Adam is Adam's name because that is what he is. Ground. And Moses in his poetic form and his, and his parallelism between chapters 2 and 1 He's setting up the man, Adam, to be the federal head of creation. To be the direct representative of God. Paul didn't pull this idea out of thin air when he wrote 1 Corinthians or Romans or Ephesians. He was going back to Genesis chapter 2 and he was saying, the man is the direct representative of God. God. So when he writes in 1 Corinthians, God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of a man and and the man is the head of a woman. He's not pulling that out of thin air. He's getting it from Genesis chapter 2 here. And when he writes in Ephesians, men, love your wives like Christ loves his church. Die for her. He's not pulling that instruction out of thin air. The man is named according to his nature here. And when we get to the name for woman, woman, we're going to see something quite different going on because woman is, she's not named according to her source. She's giving a, given an entirely different name, which I think is beautiful in this text. So God brought the animals to the man, Adam, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Do you see what's happening here? I, I had a question as I read that that statement. Adam is Adam is giving the animals names, he's calling them something. Not God's not doing it. And my question was, why isn't God doing this? God is the one who names his creation. God God creates God fills his creation, and in chapter 1, we saw God naming his creation. Why isn't God naming his creatures here? Because he has created man. He has created man in his image, the federal head of creation. He has created man as his representative ruler upon the earth. He has created man according to his kind. He has created man to rule, to subdue the earth. He has created man to do what he does. And again, we see Moses just preparing the way. Adam is the federal head, which becomes really important, right? When we get to the New Testament and the writers of the epistles, the human authors, they start talking about Christ as the second Adam, the last Adam. Like this detail is really important for us. Adam names the animals and there's no debate Adam is in charge of this process. God places him in charge of this process. Whatever Adam names the animals, that is what they are. So Adam is doing the very thing that God did first. It is his job. He is to be like God. And he's doing well at his job because the world is perfect here. So he names the animals. And whatever he calls them, that is what they are that was its name verse 20 the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field but for adam there was not found a suitable helper for him there wasn't there wasn't a creature to fit him and that was capable of helping him I read this and the logistician in me goes crazy. There's something like 8.7 million species of animal on the earth today. And to go back to chapter one and to see all this happened on the sixth day and by the seventh day, God's creation was completed. So all this is happening like apparently in a 24 hour period, right? And the logistician in me just goes nuts. And then I think about some criticisms that people have against the Bible. Like that's how you know the account isn't true. There's something like 8.7 million species of animal on the earth. And you mean to tell me that within 24 hours, Adam was able to name them all. And God still also have time to take his time creating a woman from Adam's rib to cause him to go to sleep and to, and to knit this woman fearfully and wonderfully as, as part of his image. You mean to tell me there was enough time to do that? Logistically speaking... No, <laughs> right? No. Now, my, my response to the evolutionist, a materialist, is is simple. I just ask a question, right? Do, do you believe that there were just as many species of animal on the earth at the beginning that there are now? Well, the evolutionists say no. There were much fewer. Okay, then the answer is simple for you. Okay. But me the answer is not so simple because I'm not an I'm not an evolutionist. I don't believe I, I don't believe that there were a lesser number of kinds on the earth than there are now. If if anything, I think there are less now than there were. Right. So the question's a little more difficult for for me to answer. And so, in order to answer the question for biblicists like myself, we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we read all the way through here to verse 20. Are you ready? Just kidding. We don't need to read it all again. But when you do read it, pay attention to the wording God creates animals according to what? Their kind. Their kinds. And in context, then, when we read that Adam is naming all the animals, it's best to, to read this in a sense that he's naming them according to their kinds, right? Which may not be every species on the planet. In fact, it may not even be at the genus level. Like, we have no idea what the Bible means biologically by kinds, because that wasn't Moses, Moses' point, right? His point in writing kinds was to say animals were created according to their kinds, people were created according to God's kind, and that was his point. So I, I love some of the research coming out of institutions like the Institute for Creation Research. Ken, Ken Ham and his team, I think they do a phenomenal job when it comes to many, many things, but when we start going to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which is what happens often, and we start saying, start, start trying to explain this by saying, well, what it means is, is genuses at the genus level. Because I was pre- preparing for today's sermon, my son and I had a biology lesson, right? We have, we have breeds, and we have species, and we have the genus, and we have the families, right? And so we walk through all those levels. Son, I need you to remember that forever, okay? It's not the most important thing to remember in life, I promise. But we don't know what is meant by kinds on a biological level because that's not Moses' goal. I think we take away from the text when we look at this and we try to define exactly what was meant by kinds. But it's best to believe Adam is naming them according to their kinds, and we just have no idea how many there were. We shouldn't add to the Bible what isn't there to add right in fact we are free not to have to add to the bible and brothers and sisters that just creates an environment where we have to explain a whole lot less because there's a whole lot less that seems to contradict the bible okay it makes apologetics really easy and we get a clearer sense of what the bible is actually saying So we don't have to fret at questions like that. How could Adam name so many animals in such a short period of time? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, and it doesn't actually tell us at what level he's naming the animals, right? So it's not a problem we have to invent. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And this is where quite a few people standing in Pulpits around the world will say, Adam had to go through this process in order to appreciate his wife. And then the application comes out, men, do you appreciate your wives? That's a good question to ask, but it's not a proper application of this text, okay? That is not what's happening here. No, Moses is setting Adam up as the federal head of creation. That's what's happening here. He is doing what God did in the first chapter right here. That is what Moses is doing. This story is about God, and we, we shouldn't commit the sin of narcissism looking into this text, reading ourselves into the text and trying to find every single way to apply this text to our relationships with one another. Do you appreciate your wives? Again, good question. Bad application of this text, right? It's not what Moses is doing here. So there was no one to compliment the man, no suitable helper for him. Verse 21 So the Lord God caused. Who caused? The Lord God. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Okay, Adam had no control over this. There's no will of Adam in this equation. God caused, he said, sleep, and Adam fell asleep. Okay? He didn't spend time debating with Adam. Adam, would you like me to create a helper suitable for you? Just take a little nap and I'll make it happen. You can wake up. No, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, and this is where you hear the joke, right? A woman was taken from man's side, not not from in front of him or behind him, so that they walk side by side, right? And preachers will say that, but that's not Moses' goal either. Okay? Again, maybe it's something good to recognize there's an equality there, but that's again not what Moses is doing. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, fashioned into a woman the rib, which He had taken from the man And brought her to the man This is important From what did God craft The beasts and the cattle and the birds The ground From what did God craft woman Adam His rib And he brought her to the man And the man said, whoa, man. (laughs) Again, one of those jokes that every preacher preaches from the pulpit, but it doesn't actually help anybody, right? Adam is not looking at how hot or sexy this thing is that God is bringing to him. His jaw is not dropping and his eyes aren't popping out of his skull, okay? At least not that we know of. No, the man said, in perfect poetic form, in Hebrew, not necessarily in English, right? This is now bone of my bones. This is my favorite detail in this chapter. There's now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Which doesn't sound like woe man in Hebrew. It sounds like Isa, okay? It's not the same thing. And she shall be called woman. Adam names her because she was taken out of man. And Moses highlights this detail as he's telling the story, as he's telling the narrative, as he's writing it down. Animals taken from the ground, from the Adama. Woman taken from the man, Adam. Two different source materials. Well, that sounds a lot like chapter one. There's a parallelism here, right? Sounds a lot like chapter 1. The plants coming from the ground and God fashioning animals, beasts, cattle, crawling things out of the ground and, and the waters teeming with fish. And he's filling the sky with birds that apparently are created from, from the ground, which is a detail not provided in chapter 1, but it is provided here in chapter 2. And then when he gets to humanity, he says, I will make them after my kind. And literally, he's pulling humanity out of the ground, right? But that's not the, the language used to describe humanity's source there, it's saying, "I will make them out after my kind." And here in chapter two, the, the, the beasts, the crawling things, the, the, cra- the cattle, out of the ground, Adama, the woman, Issa, out of the man. Not the ground, but the man. Two different source materials. Here so so when Adam looks at his bride specially crafted for him he looks at her and says she is after my kind she came from me not from the ground god what wonderful thing have you done here painting a picture of yourself. You wonder why God did things this way. That's because with humanity from the start, he created humanity after his own kind. And if humanity is his image, then there needs to be something about about that reflected in human existence. So Adam, he pulls from the ground. Names Adam according to Adam's source material. His name is literally ground. Okay? And then he crafts Eve from Adam. Adam. And Adam sees her and gives her a different name than his own. This is Isa, woman. She is special. She has a different source. When God created his image, he created his image. Special, from a different source, according to his own kind. Now Eve is made according to Adam's kind here in chapter 2, like, this is big. It's huge. And we take away from that when, when we major on some joke about Eve being hot. Like, no, she is quite literally after Adam's kind. Like humanity is after God's kind. You see what Moses is doing here. Again, the New Testament writers, they didn't pull this idea out of thin air. You read Ephesians, and he's talking about, and you read 1 Corinthians, and you read Romans, and and Paul, when he he writes, he's talking about man being the image of God and and woman being the image of a man, right? What is that? It's, It's here. Right here. And why is that? Because. The man is the direct representation of God, and the woman, she is, she is the picture of humanity in this relationship. And so we see two things about the creation of man and woman here, and they're mind-blowing when we realize what Moses is doing, right? In the Hebrew language, it's a little easier to see because you can see the word play. Adama, Adam, all right, I can get that. In English, we don't see that. We see two things about the creation of man and woman. One, and we're going to see this here in a moment when we read, they became one flesh. They're joined together. They become one flesh, right? A man is an individual, and the woman is an individual. There are two persons. When they are joined together, they are still two persons, but they become one flesh. And so within the creation of man and woman there's there's a single flesh, plurality of persons. And God is Trinity and His transcendent nature. When He creates His image, you need that. And that's the whole reason He instituted marriage and why marriage as a religious institution and belongs within the context of the church. Society has no power over the definition of marriage. Right? Because the definition of marriage is a representation of who God is and the image of God is represented in the marriage relationship biblically. Okay? Two persons, one flesh. And these are persons who complement each other naturally. Right? The second thing we see is that in the creation woman we see the relationship between God and his church present in the marriage relationship. The man being the direct representative of God and the woman being the object of redemption the the helper the one who is served by her husband the one who is under her husband's authority so this is not about the rights or abilities of people from the start. That's, that's narcissus again. That's trying to read ourselves into the text and trying to twist the text to, to match our societal standards, which aren't that great in the first place. Okay. No, this is about the image of God. This is about God revealing himself in people. And so for a man to be a head of a household, is a position of sacrifice not a position where he can lord his authority you can't lord your authority over anyone and love your wife like Christ loved the church if you're lording your authority over people you're not dying for them Okay, those are opposites place of sacrifice and the woman being the object of redemption paints the perfect picture of the church which, which I think is the more glorious position anyway she is doted upon she is prepared as a bride and while the husband bears the responsibility to lead his wife and his children to subdue the earth and rule over it in a godly way the wife is there as a, as a helpmate in this complementarian relationship. And that doesn't mean women don't have the ability to lead. That doesn't mean women don't have the ability to teach. Don't misconstrue my words or the words of the Bible here. That doesn't mean women can't be strong, independent women on the occasion Calls for it, okay? It does mean that God desires to reveal something about himself in creating a woman from Adam. She is the object of redemption. She represents all of humankind, which is why later Moses refers to her as the mother of the living. That would be chapter 3 toward the end of the chapter. There'll be a lot of heartache before we get to that moment, okay? And the man is a picture of Christ as the head of Christ's church. That's why in the New Testament, when the church is established, when the kingdom of God is established on the earth, and yes, I'm equating the two on purpose, the woman becomes the symbol for the church. And the church is called she, and the church is called bride. Of Christ, and the woman has this amazing honor about her. She was taken out of man, verse twenty-four. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For what reason? Because all of a sudden he's married, and now he should leave his parents. Well, pay attention to what's happening here. God created the man as his direct representative. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. There comes a time in a boy's life when he does become a man, and at that moment he leaves the instruction of his parents. What, what does this paint a picture of, this sort of, this sort of independence or non-dependence on parents at least, right? And if God is sovereign and he is Lord and he is ruler and we are his image and man is the direct representative of God, eventually he must come out from the yoke of his parents. And so growing into adulthood, growing into maturity is a good thing and living with mom and dad forever, men is not a good thing god created us for more a man shall leave his father and mother that doesn't mean ignore them all the time don't use this as an excuse to ignore mom and dad okay to refuse to call to refuse to say i love you and even on occasion to receive advice when advice is given right that's not what this means This doesn't even necessarily mean like physical separation over distances. This means you come out of the instruction of your parents. You become your own man. You follow God and you lead your wife like a man. Like God created you to do. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Flesh. This is not one spirit. This is not one emotion. This is not one person. This is one flesh. And this, I think, does refer directly to the act of sexual consummation. So we see some sexuality here in the text. And just growing up in purity culture, I have to make this known like purity culture was a disaster for my generation. Teenagers growing up being told sex is evil, it's it's bad, don't don't ever do that. Don't think about it. We're not going to talk about it. This is a silent issue. And they either grow up and go crazy or grow up and they're, af- they're afraid to be exposed. Okay? From the beginning, sexuality is good. God created it. It's good. People abuse it today. No doubt. But the most basic level and naturally speaking, sexuality is good. Something to be celebrated as a good creation of God and something to be enjoyed by God's people within the natural context God provided this sacrificial, complementary, and relationship. Right? Which brings up something interesting about sex itself. Even though it is enjoyable, it is more about the giving of oneself to another complementarian mate than it is about taking pleasure from someone. And our society teaches exactly the opposite. It is, it is good and it is holy. The two shall become one flesh. Again, we see the Trinitarian nature of God transcendent, Trinitarian nature of God represented in the marriage relationship. Two persons, one flesh in the marriage relationship, and God is one essence, three persons. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were all exposed before each other and before God And they were unashamed of their nakedness, of their nudity. They didn't hide who they were. Nudity, nakedness wasn't being abused like it is today through pornography and human lust and the drifting of human thought. And the want to use nakedness for self-gratification Rather than celebrating the human form as the image of God, the physical image, material image of the immaterial God, everything about our physiology says something about who God is. Adam and his wife, Issa, were both naked, and they were not ashamed. I have a quick note here, too, about bearing children, since children are mentioned, at least alluded to, because a man shall leave his father and mother. That means father and mother have had children. The bearing of children and the purpose that has in the order of creation, it really astounds me. Like, God could have made things a lot easier if he wanted us to multiply and fill the earth, right? We could be more like amoebas, you know, just separate and divide like cells and overtake the whole earth. Like, he could have done that if he wanted to. Okay, no doubt. But said he created sex, which is sacrificial. And in, in our day, doesn't always work to produce children, right? Why did God do this? Because he wanted something that came from this complementary marriage relationship. And when we see our children for the first time, this is the first, first thought when I saw my son and held my son, right? You know what my first thought was? Bone of my bones, literally is coming from my genetics and flesh of my flesh. This kid came from me and from my wife together. Two two persons, one flesh, kind of like we came from the Trinity of God, right? This this child came from me, bone of my bones and, and flesh of my flesh, And we named our son. We already had a name picked out at this point. I wasn't coming up with it right then, right? We, we named our son together. And I, I think we're meant to feel the way Adam felt when he saw his wife. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, after my kind. And I think every time a child is born... Our minds are to go back to creation and what God is doing for his own glory, the fact that we're created in the image of God. And this is the perfect picture of that. And one day my son will grow up and he will will leave my instruction and he will have children of his own and grow the same way that I have grown. What a beautiful story Moses is telling here. And he's setting us up with the perfection and with the bliss and with the luxury and with the the nudity and with the sex and with the perfection of it all. He's setting us up for something terrible in chapter 3. Everything is perfect. It's a Genesis 2 world right now in the text. But it won't be long before, at least in this narrative, right? Right? It won't be long before Adam and Eve are cast into a Genesis 3 world rampant with sin where they hide their skin and where sex is abused, where people are used. Some of the things that we experience in our own day. So be prepared for next week. And be prepared as we watch the amazing creation of God plummet into sin because of unrighteousness. Can I end right there or can I be encouraging? Knowing Genesis 2, we know some of the things we get to look forward to when the world is renewed. And some of the things because we believe the kingdom of Christ is at hand It is here, some of the things we get to experience now in marriage relationship. And I think that is wonderful. Amen. Amen.